Welcome to Standard Chartered Money Insights, a podcast series by Standard Chartered Bank that brings you market views and insights on the go. Welcome to Standard Chartered Money Insights. My name is Marco Iacchini, and I'm a cross-asset strategist from our Chief Investment Office. On this episode of the podcast, we dive into the topic of ESG ratings. Joining me today for this conversation, I have the pleasure of welcoming Thomas Morris, Product Specialist for the Global Growth Equities Team at Allianz Global Investors. Sustainable investing is not new, and it has gained more traction in the past few years, as it made headlines more often. Various regulatory bodies are looking at regulations to monitor the space, and asset managers are trying to mainstream ESG in their investment processes. And ESG, for everyone's knowledge, that is environment, social, and governance pillars. In order to mainstream ESG into investment processes, investors need to access ESG research and data, which will be the topic of discussion for today. To further help investors simplify and translate a wealth of ESG information and to be able to do peer comparisons, ESG rating agencies have developed ESG ratings which are typically derived from quantitative assessments on companies in various related ESG metrics. Now, before asking my questions to you, Thomas, uh, one last thing to mention, due to compliance reasons for today's episode, we won't mention any specific company's name, uh, but we'll give you a general sense nonetheless, so you can better follow and, and understand our conversation. Now, back to you, Thomas, is there a need for ESG ratings and how do investors make sense of it? Yeah, thanks, Marco, and a pleasure to be here with you today. Now, by way of background, it's helpful to understand where ESG ratings come from. Sustainable investing's origins lie in a form of values-based investing, i.e. trying to match up client investments with certain ethical positions, such as the exclusion of alcohol or pornography, or even tobacco from portfolios. Now, excluding sectors on the basis of revenue percentages, something that we continue to do to this day, is relatively straightforward. To go one step further, though, it's necessary to apply a level of distinction between companies. In other words, find a way of comparing the ESG performance of one stock to another. This, too, on the surface, sounds simple. We can all think of some straightforward environmental, social and governance performance metrics like greenhouse gas emissions, human rights violations, or or levels of board independence. By comparing these, it must be easy enough to come up with a a relative ranking of each company. But why not just compare them straight up, without bothering about ratings at all? The first problem is disclosure. With no agreed set of ESG principles, companies are under no obligation to reveal these data points or share them with investors. For example, even seemingly simple metrics like CO2 emissions are by no means disclosed universally. The second problem lies in deciding what is relevant to measure. The number of fatalities in the workplace is an extremely important metric for industrial companies, which have a large workforce, operate in sometimes dangerous conditions. It can indicate adherence to health and safety policies, levels of training, as well as acting as a proxy for employee treatment more broadly. But Does it have the same relevance in a bank where work is primarily conducted in the safety of an air-conditioned office? Probably not. Finally, once we've decided what to measure and found some data, how do we compare companies? Should the ESG performance of an energy company be compared with that of a technology name? 
This combination of sustainable investing's historically value-based approach and the sheer logistical complexity of determining ESG performance creates, in essence, two main issues. Firstly, in assigning stocks ESG ratings, certain organisations are still performing a subjective value judgment. Secondly, without a thoroughly transparent methodology, investors and clients alike are forced to accept the decisions of ESG ratings providers on trust. The result of these issues can be seen in what is known as the divergence effect. In a now famous paper published by the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, called Aggregate Confusion, researchers found that across the various providers, ESG ratings data could vary hugely. On average, correlations across ratings was only equal to about half, while the range was as wide as 0.38 to 0.71. This level of noise means that without further additional analysis, the ratings are of limited use. Thanks, Thomas. To sum up what you've just shared, uh, investors may have a difficult time assessing ESG issues themselves uh, because companies may not publicly report ESG-related information or investors may not know what ESG factors are relevant to which sectors. And even if we've identified such factors, how do we compare them across sectors? That's obviously something difficult to do. Now, ESG ratings from rating agencies, as you've highlighted, can help address these issues, but the variation across providers can be confusing, as you just mentioned in your last point. Now, our sustainable investment team speaks to many asset managers on their ESG integration processes, and they've noticed that most, uh, if not all asset managers, have developed their own proprietary ESG ratings, which in turn, their investment professionals uh, usually reference. Perhaps speaking specifically to Allianz Global Investors, how does this help with the addressing uh, of the issues we've just discussed? Yeah, at Allianz Global Investors, we've been running our proprietary ESG ratings model since the year 2000. This means that we know exactly what goes into the scoring of each company. Moreover, as active managers, we accompany our ratings with bottom-up fundamental analysis looking at both the footprint and the handprint of a company. By this, we mean, firstly, the ESG impact data of a company's operations, but also the broader contribution a company is making to the sustainability of the economy at large. Now, this model itself takes an approach that is based on the materiality of ESG criteria. By doing this, we are able to make meaningful comparisons across our investment universe. In other words, we consider each ESG data point with respect to its impact on the long-term operations of a company, and ultimately, its share price. We do this by grouping stocks at a sector level, and weighting each factor in our rating system accordingly to produce ratings from worst to best in class. This avoids the issue of rating all technology companies highly simply because they are asset light, and energy stocks poorly because they are not. Now, To illustrate the point, let's compare a well-known electric vehicle company with strong ESG credentials according to public eye and marketing documentation, operating in electric vehicles as well as solar energy. At the other end of the scale, we have an energy company with a multi-decade heritage in oil and gas. One of these stocks is almost uninvestable according to our SRI ratings. Now, guess which one? 
I know this is a tricky question, but uh, I'll go with a simple, quick answer and uh, guess that it's the energy company. Well, there you go. You've, you've fallen into the trap. Um, the answer is, in fact, the electric vehicle company. Across all of the major E, S and G pillars which make up our ratings, the company scores poorly relative to peers in its technology sector. From an environmental perspective, this can be summed up as supply chain issues. The company is immensely dependent on materials that are sourced from the Congo region of Africa. Socially, it has frequently been accused of poor working conditions at both a manufacturing and executive level. Lastly, in terms of governance, there are fundamental concerns that the company has to work on. The energy company, by contrast, is a best-in-class stock, according to our ESG ratings. Compared to other energy names, the company has taken the lead in adopting science-based targets to reach a net-zero business by the year 2050. The company has also directly linked executive remuneration to delivering those targets, with short-term measures in place to ensure they aren't just kicked down the road. And the company has clear and progressive policies related to not only the treatment of its workers, but also the citizens in the areas in which it operates. It's brilliant. Thank you for uh, that example. It's very useful. Now, you've shared with us how sustainable funds at Allianz Global Investors use uh, ESG ratings. Just to play devil's advocate and to help us better understand your internal ESG rating, um, the said energy company is, after all, is uh, still an oil and gas company. And um, as we've just said, it has a high ESG risk uh, rating. Um, there are controversies relating to the company's activities that led to oil spills in over several decades, uh, which continue to face litigation to this day. Now, can you help us understand more how the company is deemed as a best-in-class in the energy sector? Sure thing. Um, the first thing to remember is that we take this sector-relevant approach, so comparing companies with their peers. The second is to look at the journey these companies are taking and how that benefits society. To reach a net zero global economy, we as a population are going to have to reduce our consumption of fossil fuels. That is a statement with which neither we nor now the majority of big energy companies disagree. However, it is that consumption which is key. Over 90% of this energy company's emissions are generated in scope three emissions, i.e. in the use of their products by customers. For the transition to a sustainable economy to be successful, these consumers also need to change their habits. Now, that's not something which can be done overnight through blunt tools like divestment of the assets by, by owners, or indeed the companies. The majority of oil and gas resources lie in state-owned companies, which are not accountable to investor pressure. Straightforward sale or disposal of assets will either return them to state-owned companies or into the hands of private equity, which will reduce transparency and accountability. As such, the key role that we as active asset managers can play is in engagement and explanation. Companies need to understand what investors expect of them in a modern society, but at the same time, the public needs to be better educated in what businesses are doing. This is where we can play a vital role. In this particular case, both CEO, chairman and other executives have been highly responsive to our firm's asks on climate policy, as well as strategic orientation. 
The litigation you mentioned has, for example, been a subject of engagements with us since 2012. Here, our dialogues help bring forward a clear strategy from the company. Similarly, it was our discussion with the remuneration board, which saw per share metrics and buybacks included specifically into the company's framework. Finally, this company has made unique commitments on biodiversity. The company's ambition is to have a net positive impact in this respect. The company is committed not to explore for oil and gas resources in natural and mixed world heritage sites, and in fact did this as far back as 2003. Now though, they want to go further in all of their new projects, and their nature-based solutions projects will protect, transform or restore land, and will have further environmental benefits beyond storing carbon, such as improving soil productivity, cleaning air and water, and maintaining biodiversity. They will also offer alternative sources of income to local communities, as well as replanting forests in order to achieve their net zero deforestation target. Finally, they're going to work with environmental partners such as the Union for Conservation of Nature in order to continue to learn, improve and move forward. So is this transparency, a willingness to engage, combined with initiatives around biodiversity, which really mark this company out? In short, the energy company has no less of a claim than the EV company to enabling a transition to a low carbon future. That's not to say that it would be completely out of bounds for us. It's just that within the parameters of what we're trying to do with respect to our sustainable funds, it's just not something that is right for us at the moment. Thank you. The um, the ability to engage with companies well on ESG topics, we, we agree, is very important. And it's something we do look for in, in asset managers. Now, we've spoken quite a bit about how active management adds value, especially when it comes to sustainable investing. Why don't we switch gears a little and speak about the growth of ESG ETFs as well, uh, that is sustainable ETFs. Now, I may be oversimplifying it, but typically uh, an exclusion screen would be applied, that is eliminating what we quote unquote call bad companies. And, And then the index provider will then use the ESG ratings to decide on a cutoff of uh, a minimum ESG rating, let's say uh, a triple B score, for example. Um, And that would be in in order to determine what can be included based on these ESG metrics. So that in sum is how perhaps some of these uh, ESG ETFs would go about uh, becoming sustainable in a way. Now, sustainable ETFs were also highlighted for their outperformance, especially during the market downturn around March 2020. And Maybe I'm putting you on a tough spot, but do you have any thoughts on the passive side of uh, sustainability and ESG investing? Uh, yeah, I mean, certainly do. Um, I mean, look, let's start with the, the 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 positive. There's there's no doubt that indices have provided retail investors with a cheap and easy way of investing in companies with high ESG scores. And bear in mind, we discussed the merits of those ESG scores earlier on. Q1 of this year saw flows into these sustainable ETFs, as as they are called, um, in Europe overtake all the others for the first time ever. Um, They actually made up 26 billion US dollars of the inflows, and every other type of ETF was about 22 billion in total. And in 2019, they actually accounted for a sixth of all inflows overall. 
So there's clearly very strong growth here. Now, as an active management company, it's only natural that I would pick out some of the flaws uh, in, in these products. The first two aren't unique to sustainable investing. So beginning with the first point, uh, one of our sustainable strategies, but in fact, you know, most of our sustainable strategies have always believed, believed in delivering two objectives. Yes, a positive impact on society, but also financial outperformance of broader equity markets. Now, ETFs will only ever be able to deliver performance that is in line with those markets and then subtract fees. So that's the first point to make. Secondly, as an active rather than passive manager, we proactively steward our client capital. So that means exercising all of our proxy voting rights with the result that Alliance Global Investors as a firm is frequently cited as one of the most proactive companies when it comes to issues like excessive CEO pay, climate change policies, and even board diversity. These proxy votes, which we make on behalf of our clients, are informed and indeed shaped by our extensive one-to-one -one engagements with company management, where we discuss and debate key ESU issues. Then we come to the issues that we talked about earlier about ESG scores. Most ETFs are buying these ratings in wholesale without interrogating them. And clients, as a result, are allocating assets to stocks which may not necessarily be aligned with their views on the economy or even their broader values, despite what marketing literature might say. So, for example, the ESG variant of the S&P 500 has the exact same five top holdings as the mainstream version. Those companies are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook and Alphabet. Likewise, one of this year's most successful sustainable ETF launches is supposedly designed to invest in companies that, and I'm quoting here, benefit from the transition to a low carbon economy. Now, looking quickly at those holdings, some customers might wonder how directly some of those holdings are actually going to benefit from that transition. Great. Now, before we end today's session, uh, let's discuss one more topic, shall we? And, and that is the ESG momentum. Now, ESG momentum here means the change in ESG rating over a certain period of time. We know that ESG ratings generally do not change often uh, unless there is a uh, controversy that is factored in, uh, and that could be in the, in, the sh in the near term. So tracking this ESG momentum can serve as an additional data point, uh, giving investors a better picture of the company and understanding the potential risks and opportunities. What are some examples of changes in ESG momentum that you've seen, and how can investors capture this ESG momentum in their investment portfolios? Yeah. I mean, going back to the previous example, this shift that the energy company has made is a perfect example of what we call ESG momentum. In other words, the ability of a company to improve its ESG performance over time. Now, these changes are and have been gradual and often wouldn't have happened without our engagement and the broader shifting of public opinion. But when they do, they can help deliver our two key objectives in the fund, and those are of positive impact and financial outperformance. Now, the reason being that a progressive approach on those ESG cr criteria 
we consider to be material to the bottom line of a company, in this case of the energy company, which would be you know, resource efficiency, capital allocation, or remuneration incentives, all of those should ultimately manifest in a better company. In other words, ESG improvement goes hand in hand with financial outperformance. Finding companies that can and indeed want to deliver both of those things and then helping management deliver it through engagement is a real value add for us as active portfolio managers. Fantastic. Now, we've discussed quite a lot today, so thank you so much, Thomas, for joining, uh, joining our conversation. That is all for this episode of Standard Charter Money Insights. If you would like to learn more or read our publications, please visit our website at sc.com under Latest Market Insights. As a reminder, if you enjoyed our discussion today, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you, and until next time. Thank you for listening to Standard Chartered Money Insights, a podcast series by Standard Chartered Bank. For more details on the latest market insights, subscribe to Standard Chartered Money Insights.